0: Fifth District U.S. Congresswoman Johanna Hayes may be relatively new to the job. She's just entering her second term, but she's already shaking things up. Recently, she led the charge to remove Georgia Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene from the House Education Committee. It was in response to Greene spreading conspiracy theories about the Sandy Hook shooting in Newtown. It's a town in Hayes District. This is disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Hayes launched into politics after being honored as National Teacher of the Year in 2016. And those years as a history teacher shape her daily approach to politics. Hayes is Connecticut's first Black congresswoman. And it's a role, she says, she doesn't take lightly. Later in the show, we'll hear about divisions in the Republican Party and how those national challenges are being felt on the state level. But first. Johanna Hayes, she's the U.S. Representative for Connecticut's 5th Congressional District. Congresswoman Hayes, welcome to Disrupted.
2: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: I'm so glad that you're here. You know, we are now in the last week of Black History Month. And as educators, we often talk about, yes, remember the history, but also think about the people who are making history every day. And when you were elected to Congress as the first Black woman to represent the state of Connecticut, also as an educator, you made history that continues to have an imprint. Talk to us about what it's like to be a representative in the US Congress.
2: Well it was, I wasn't trying to make history. It's not something that I thought about, but I have to tell you the first time I saw that in print, it really just fell on me. The weight fell on my heart because I recognized there was such a responsibility, um, that it had never been done, that there would be a higher expectation of me, but I can tell you over the last uh, almost three years now, it really is walking in faith. It is doing what you know is right all the time. It is not being concerned about the optics, but just making sure, just recognizing I'm here to help people. I'm here to give people a voice. But also in in the context of black history, I've met so many little girls and grandmothers and mothers, and just people who say to me, One lady said, my son, we were driving in the car and he said, oh, there's a Johanna Hayes sign. And she said, how do you know who Johanna Hayes is? So for young people to be paying attention and listening and interested, it really reminds me um, that, you know, our children are watching. Um, To be in the Congress is something I I taught history. I taught about Congress. I taught about the, the branches of government and what they do. And I have such such um, a high regard, you know, for the office of. So now to be, it's funny that you asked me that because I was thinking about this yesterday. I, I said, you know, 50 years from now, a teacher is gonna open a textbook and somewhere in that conversation is gonna be the 116th Congress, which will include me. That is so humbling. It is so humbling, Kalilah.
0: So you say that it's humbling, and it sounds like this is a calling for you to serve people. But at the same time, it has to somewhat be overwhelming to know that you are carrying this role in history, that you have this this presence, not just with your district, but now people across the country know your name in this position. What are those sort of informal callings on your time as a member of Congress that don't appear in, you know, serves on committees or uh, represents the district in this way. What have you found to be those pieces that weren't readily apparent to you as you were teaching history or even being a participant in it?
2: I guess just all of the the inner workings, the things that happen behind the scenes. But again, It was. I think being in the classroom was such a gift for me because it really guides me and it grounds me. Last week, I spoke to a group of of young girls, middle schoolers, and one of the girls asked me, why do you do this job if all you ever wanted to be was a teacher? And I was taken aback because all I ever wanted to be was a teacher. That's what I am wired to be. That is what is in my heart. But during my time as the National Teacher of the Year, I saw that there were so many decisions being made about the profession, about the future of children, about the work that we do. And there was no representation at the table and not just minority representation, but as an educator, as a, as a practitioner. So I wanted to be a part of that conversation, but it doesn't change the fact that I'm wired as a teacher. Um, what it, what it has done for me and what I tried to help other people appreciate is that in this body, we need a diverse Group of voices. We need the perspectives of all people. So we need teachers and nurses and carpenters and all of the people who are on the ground who are affected by every decision that we make should give themselves permission to become a part of the larger conversation. Um, trust me, I talked myself out of this a dozen times before I decided to do it because I thought I don't have what it takes. I'm not ready. I'm not there yet. I haven't checked all the boxes. But being in this role, I realized that you don't have to check the boxes because the boxes that remain unchecked are precisely the ones that, the voices that we need. Um, And that's what I think this year has, my time in, in the Congress has really taught me that there is no prescriptive way to legislate. You care about people and you do whatever you need to do to make sure that those people are represented.
0: Let's talk about coming into that space, because often women, particularly women of color who think about elected office, feel that they, as you said, have to check all the boxes. You have to be the perfect candidate. You have to be overly qualified in order to be considered. And for other people, it is simply being asked that they think, oh, yes, I will go for that. How do you make space for yourself to say, yes, I am not the, the candidate that we are used to, but I am the candidate that we need? How do you reconcile that sort of tension?
2: Well, I guess you. Sur- first of all, you surround yourself with people who are affirming, who remind you of the value that you bring. But I've seen even in this space as you know, running an office, I can look through a stack of resumes and there are men who will apply for a job with little or no experience and women who will lowball a salary or come in and really don't have the same self-confidence. So first surround yourself with people who are affirming, but also you know take those risks. And that's why this role is so important. Because for, for me, I didn't, I didn't have that in my state. I, we had never had a woman of color in this role. But for anyone who comes behind me, it can never be said that I haven't seen it done. So, and that's really why I try to be as transparent as possible in this role. That's why I try to pull back the curtains. That's why I try to break down those barriers and get rid of the VIP room, if you will. One of the things that I made a just, it was important to me, I instilled it in my staff, everyone has access to this office. You know, people in my first term, people would call the office and start with, well, I connected with the previous representative, or this is, you know, really run down their resume, and that's not necessary. I am your representative. You are welcome here. And what I saw was people who had never engaged with their congressional representative calling my office, coming to my office, feeling welcome in this space. So it's not just about telling people they're welcome, but making them feel welcome and then doing whatever you have to do to meet them where they are. One of the things my office did in the first term was we did casework on your corner where we went out into communities, into wherever we could to tell people, this is what we do. This is how your congressional representative can help you and we want to make sure that you're aware of that and you have access, which for me was strange because many of the people who were calling my office had problems that I've had in the past, but never thought to call my congressperson. But then saw the same people calling all the time who knew, oh, no, you can help me to connect with this federal agency. And I just thought I would have, there were so many times in the past where I needed help with my taxes or, you know, with just all different problems that I've had, never once thought, oh, I know who to call. So just making sure that people are aware and welcome and inviting them in.
0: You wrote a piece for Medium that was really groundbreaking, not not just because of what you were saying, but the fact that you as an elected official said, I need to say this because I know others are dealing with this. And and there's one sentence here that really stood out to me. And you wrote, black women are expected to press on, to ignore this behavior, to not talk explicitly about it because it is uncomfortable, divisive, or does not reflect the sentiments of most people. Why did you decide I need to, to speak about this? I need to voice this. And not hold on to it and just deal with it because it was what you were feeling, but also what connected. So what was happening that made you say, now is the time to say this?
2: That op-ed was written in response to a Zoom incident where I was called the N-word over and over. And I, as I wrote in the piece, got the meeting back on track, made sure everyone was okay. And It was about three o'clock in the morning when I wrote that, that op-ed, I just got up and I started to journal because I was feeling all of these things. But I was, I think, angry at myself because I said, how can anyone expect? And and I realized in that moment that not only do other people expect it, but we we expect it of ourselves. People say, "Don't give oxygen to the situation," or "Don't l- don't let people see you sweat or see that it bothers you or, or that it breaks you." And I said, "No, I am not broken." But to to not acknowledge that I have feelings around what just happened uh, is problematic. And I think I've done that so many times, whether it be in the workplace or in the community where things happen, and you really take yourself out of the equation and think about just the bigger picture about how this affects everyone else in the job or how this affects, you know, all of the work that you've done. You don't wanna be seen as weak. You don't wanna be seen as, as angry. God forbid, you know, I, I think that we are always struggling with this idea that if we show any emotion that we're either weak or angry as black women. Um, and emotion is normal. It is something that we need to deal with to process in order to pack it away and move on. And I I think it it is so incredibly frustrating in this. I mean, everything from what are you going to wear to how are you going to style your hair to, you know, how are you going to present yourself to what does your face look like when you're thinking? All of those things. And I'm like, no. And, and, And in that moment, I wasn't writing as a congressperson. I was writing as a person who was hurt by the fact that all of the work that i had done in my life in that moment all someone saw was the n word and for for me i have a voice and a platform where i can where i know that that's not who i am but like i wrote in that piece if this had been one of my students you know a 17 year old black boy who was 6 feet tall and someone had called him that word and he responded I know it wouldn't have turned out the same way. I know that the CEO from Zoom wouldn't have reached out and said, how can we fix this? Or what suggestions do you have? I know that it wouldn't have been picked up as a national story that, and those are problems. And those are problems that our young people deal with every day, that women in the workplace deal with every day, that Black women deal with in their communities. And I've seen parents come to school and just the way they were received there's just the interconnectedness of all of these interactions really needs to, we need to talk about it. We need to have some critical conversations about how we can be better. And again, I I am in a position where by me talking about it, I'm giving voice to all of the people who just deal with it every day. um, Who, My grandma used to tell me, put your head down, expect to work twice as hard, don't get in trouble. And I'm like, or I can put or I can lift my head up and fix the problem. And, you know, my grandma, I love her to death, but her generation, that was the way you things. You work twice as hard. You expect that it's going to be harder and you just put your head down and do what you have to do. Um, It doesn't have to be like that.
0: We're talking with U.S. 5th District Congresswoman Johanna Hayes, and we'll continue our conversation after the break. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Coming up, Professor Jonathan Wharton talks about how rifts in the National Republican Party are playing out locally. But now, let's continue our conversation with U.S. Congresswoman Johanna Hayes. She serves Connecticut's 5th District. Ask what she thinks about some of the bills that have stalled in the Senate, including those focusing on criminal justice reform. Should we expect more progress this session?
2: I think that we have to. And the, I think the reason why so much of that legislation even got attention in, in the House was because of public sentiment. People are are ready to have this conversation. People recognize that we cannot move forward and continue to heal and to grow without having these conversations. People felt incredibly uncomfortable that we had taken the ostrich approach and put our head in the sand and closed our eyes to so many of the things that we knew, and now they were bubbling up in our communities. And I think, That made a lot of people uncomfortable to see that these situations and these realities still exist, where people avoid certain spaces, or people are treated differently in certain spaces. And I think what this Congress has done is, and what we've seen across the country, is people are realizing that even though this isn't happening directly to my family, by people, I mean white people, people who don't identify as minority or black are saying, this is not happening to my family, but it makes me uncomfortable enough to say, I don't want this happening to your family either. And I don't think that it was intentional. I don't think that people freak like so many people feel like, well, I didn't build the system. I wasn't even aware this existed. But now that it's almost like the light is on, people are saying, well, wait a minute. I didn't build it, but I don't want to contribute to it either. And that's what I saw in my district. I have so many majority white communities where I saw rallies and and protests and community meetings and screenings of, you know, I have a really small town in Cornwall that had a screening of Thirteenth. Southbury is right off. Southbury. I think they're on the fortieth week of of protests and meetings. And people are coming to their local board meetings, their board of Education, their alderman, city council, and really saying, "What are we going to do about this?" Congress has to respond. We We don't operate. we shouldn't be not even parallel. We should be our work should be informed by what is happening on the ground. So that the fact that people on the ground are calling for this are mandating this to happen gives us a charge. And the way I feel, the way I see my role in Congress is I come home, I listen to people, I hear from people, and then I bring their voice back to Washington. People didn't elect me to go off and do my own thing, to disregard what it is they want or what it is they're saying. And the people in this district and we, all over the country are saying, I choose not to contribute to this, this type of a structure. So what can we do to change the structure to address it to begin to have those conversations and close some of these equity gaps that even my even though my family wasn't experiencing them, I'm not comfortable that my neighbor's family was.
0: As you well know, there's been a lot of controversy over the last week about your Senate colleague, Ted Cruz, and whether he did what was necessary to help the people in his district what do you say when people say look yes you are an elected official but you have an obligation to when people are suffering to be right there or to figure out how do we put party aside and ideology aside to do what's best for the people do you think that's a conversation that's happening or do you think it's so partisan driven that it's hard to even reach that space
2: first of all be I'm a a Democrat, but I've never first identified as a Democrat. Before you get to the D behind my name, I am so many other things. I am a wife and a mother and a Christian and a sister and a friend and a a community servant, all of these things before I get to Democrat. In In my first term, there were several times where I said, this just doesn't feel right. These are Nobody's asking the questions that I was wishing someone would ask. And I would hear my colleagues say, you know, you're a freshman, it's too soon. And I said, if not now, then when? I'm not guaranteed a second term. Throughout my election, and and my staff used used to drive them crazy, but I would always say to people when I would speak to them, if I am not doing what you sent me to do, if you don't feel represented by me, then I don't deserve to ask you to vote for me again. You need to seek out leaders who 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 align with your vision, who's who support your vision, who share your your moral compass. Literally, I was telling people, do not vote for me if I didn't do if I'm not doing what you asked me to do. Senator Cruz, I, I can I mean, I've had several examples in my own state where we've had storms, where we've had power outages. And while I could not physically turn the power back on, I was in contact with the representatives who could just to get updates, to share with people. I was trying to direct people to warming centers or charging centers. We got so many people access to Meals on Wheels who could not get out. There are so many things that, and just the presence to say, because literally I didn't have power either. For me to be able to say to people, I am here with you. I see you, I hear you, I understand. I don't know many of the people, the circles that I travel in, who can say after a couple hours in in the dark, let's hop a plane to Cancun. This is uncomfortable. Most people can't navigate themselves out of that situation. And it just seemed incredibly just insensitive and, and tone deaf. I don't know how anyone could have thought that was a good idea. You know, when people are suffering. So it just doesn't seem like that was a that's a message that is responsive to the needs of people, and I hope people remember. You know that's one of the challenges that people have really short memories and their their engagement they tap in and out. The only way to hold leaders accountable is to be able to recall their record and say, "This is what you did as my elected." Representative, you know it doesn't even have to be about personality disputes i i want people to when i asked for re-election in a second term i was saying this is what i've done in the first term and this is what i would like to continue to do let your work speak for you so i hope that people remember these really difficult times when we're on the other side of them who was working on my behalf who was representing my interests in the time when i needed it most
0: And I think people do have a short attention span. And often, Congresswoman, I feel that people are so fatigued and so overwhelmed in this moment that we had the racial reckonings of last summer. We had this energy. We had an election that was extremely contentious. Then we had an insurrection at the Capitol where literally the people who we asked to serve us and to represent us had to then be fearful of their lives. We are coming up on a year in this pandemic. You know, families are saying, help me, help me to stay in my home, help me to educate my children and help me to feel like my mental health can be prioritized. Where do we start? You know, you are as a member of Congress facing all these different bills and different versions of these bills. Where do we start to say, this is the priority, put ego, put party aside and do what's right for the American people?
2: I think we're all tired. Everyone is fatigued, exhausted by all of these situations. Um, Where do we start? I think my gift, the greatest gift to me in this body as an elected official is that I was not an elected official before I was an elected official. I have some practical experience and every vote I take, when people say I, I'm not political, I don't get involved in politics, I have to remind them every day I'm asked to take a vote that directly impacts your life, whether the air you breathe or the water you drink or you know your Medicare, Social Security, student loan debt, everything that I do, I'm making a decision on your behalf. One of the things that really keeps me grounded when we're in a hearing or when I'm taking a vote, I can connect every vote to a person, to a family, every single vote. And not just a family that I've met on the campaign trail or a person who's told me their story, a person who I've walked that same path with or shared their lived experiences, my students, my former students. So it really is hard for me personally to take a vote. Every time you take a vote, you are either helping someone or hurting someone. So you really want to have the needle fall on the side of helping more often than not. You know, I think there are there have been times where I've had to take a dissenting vote and I have to really reckon with myself. Why am I taking this vote? What does it mean? Why is it important? And be able to go home and tell people this is why I took that vote. So I, I think it is very helpful in this space to know the people who are affected by every single vote that you're taking, understand the impact on the people who are affected by every single vote that you are taking or not taking. That's the way we rebuild. When we're talking about um, relief, a relief package, the question I would ask people is, what do we take away? What group do we see as disposable? Who do we see as not as affected and they can wait? And I don't think there's anybody who falls into that category. So we really have to be responsive. What we saw in Texas, there's a lot about their power structure and the grid and what should have happened and could have happened. We can't only have a government that is reactive and responsive. We also have to be preventive and prepared. We have to get pe- stabilize people so that they can last more than two and a half weeks without a paycheck. Those are all of the things, this pandemic has taught us so many lessons and for me has given us so many opportunities to be better. (laughs) You know, no one can ever say that, I didn't realize schools were in this bad of shape or that their infrastructure was crumbling and they didn't have proper ventilation. No one can ever in this country say that again. So how about on the other side of this pandemic, we have a plan, to say we are going to make sure that our schools are ready, our digital infrastructure is there, that kids have the ability to continue to learn if something were to happen.
0: One of the things we talk about on the show is all of the disruptions that we have experienced in our life over this last year. There is always the potential for innovation to come out of those disruptions, to better understand people and understand ourselves. And so I have to ask you, with all that's going on, what is it that gives you hope, Congresswoman Johanna Hayes?
2: Listen, pressure makes diamonds. <laughs> the fact that I am a sitting member of the United States Congress is gives me hope every day. The fact that I can go from a single teenage mom who was collecting welfare benefits to now the chairwoman of the nutrition and oversight subcommittee that will make sure that we develop programs to feed hungry people gives me hope. The fact that so many people who otherwise had not been engaged or were not listening or paying attention are now stepping up saying, what can I do? You know, the fact that voters in georgia turned out in the middle of a pandemic in bad weather to vote gives me hope all of these things um just i i have these like i said i was a history teacher i taught civics and government and i have this really altruistic view of how government can work and it's not because i'm naive it's because i recognize that government is powered by people and when people leverage that power and engage and use it you know our our most fundamental tool is the right to vote we can change the law we can change our representatives we can change the constitution through a vote so if people engage and stay connected there's no telling what we can do all of that gives me hope as a teacher reflection is your greatest tool and you always look back on every situation and say, how could I have done that differently? How could I make this lesson better? And I think even in this role, whenever I reflect on, you know, you think about how much more we have to do, I spend time reflecting on, okay, but look at what we've done. You know, if we have a hundred things and two of them are going right, instead of focusing on the 98 that are going wrong, let's try to duplicate and multiply the two that are going right so that that number gets exponentially bigger. And that comes from a life of service and working with young people who do not lack imagination or creativity and are not constricted by norms or political frameworks it really, they, my students taught me so much about just being malleable and believing in people and second chances. And, you know, that it's, it's so deep in me that it, it, Congress can't take it away. And that's, I guess, I mean, this is, there's so much to talk about in this conversation, but I guess that's what I would say to anyone, a black woman or anyone who was considering for public office or any office, you have to first know who you are. You have to know your why. You have to be firm in your commitment. Um, Because if you step into the space uncertain, there are too many voids that you'll just flip into. You really have to know who you are, why this is important, and what you want to achieve. And even I had so many big ideas for the first Congress and literally just fell into crisis after crisis so you can't even get to your big agenda but if it's if it's in you it doesn't go away with one crisis if it's in you you know if if for me equitable equitable access to high quality education is in me so no matter what is happening no matter what crisis i'm saying okay this is a short term distraction but long term How will it get me closer to that goal of equitable access to high quality education for every child? You know, how will it get me closer to the goal of making sure families in this country are not going hungry? All of those things play out in every decision that I make. And you just you learn patience, you learn resilience, you take every barrier as an find the opportunity in it. And I think young people are so good at that. And so many adults could learn from them.
0: You know, I I think as educators, we often find that our students teach us so much more than we could ever hope to teach them. And thank you for reminding us that even amid the disruption, we have to remain grounded in who we are and whose we are and what we believe. Johanna Hayes is the U.S. Representative for Connecticut's 5th Congressional District. Representative Hayes, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me and congratulations on everything. And we're going to get through this together.
0: Coming up, we'll talk about changes in Connecticut's Republican Party. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Earlier this month, the Hartford Current reported that more than 6,500 Connecticut voters have left the Republican Party since Election Day. That's a nearly 300% increase from the number who left in the three month period after the 2016 election. And meanwhile, the state Republican Party is in transition. Party chair J.R. Romano resigned in January. And it was just announced this week that Vice Chair Sue Hatfield will lead the party through June. Joining us now to talk through the landscape of Connecticut's Republican Party is Jonathan Wharton. He's Associate Dean of the School of Graduate and Professional Studies at Southern Connecticut State University and a Republican political analyst. Professor Wharton, welcome to Disrupted.
1: Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it, Professor.
0: Now, there's so much going on in this country, in the world of politics, that I want to jump right into it. We have now ended a second impeachment process. It is historic for a number of reasons, but it's also revealed some really deep fractures, not just across the parties, but within the parties. Talk to us about your reaction to this latest impeachment and what you may see as the the fallout or the outcome of it.
1: I've actually been obsessed about following this, even as of this morning. Uh, There's so many articles, and analysis out there that have been coming in over the weekend. And I really was kind of struck particularly by one article from Politico about how fractured the party has been for years, for decades. I have emphasized this uh, over and over again. And by the way, it's not different among the Democrats, really, when you think about it. But among the Republicans, we clearly have seen crescendos and certainly something like President Trump. Uh, took advantage of that. He politicized it, and certainly for his own gain. But beyond that, he and others realized that the party is a divided place and space and it remains so. The future of it is going to be very interesting. And from what I've been reading, some of the debates are whether uh, a third party should be formulated but beyond the Patriots Party, which obviously Trump has been speaking towards, but also maybe among more centrists, And moderate Republicans, Um, whether that's realistic or not, is probably the biggest debate among Republicans, because at the state and local level, it's not going to be nearly as easy because the resources, the connections. And let's face it, in Connecticut, we're I mean, not Connecticut, but just in the nation, we're very much a two party big system right now.
0: So let's talk about the the realism of that. So whenever people are upset with the parties, we know in Connecticut, for example, most people actually see themselves as independent, even if their views lean toward either party. And yet there is always this perception that publicly Republicans are always together. They always stand in solidarity. They have these internal differences and divisions, as you mentioned. But when it comes to towing the party line, the party by and large has been able to do that. So why do you think that now people are focusing on these divisions and these differences that you say have always been there?
1: Well, speaks towards the fact that Certainly there's no president anymore who's head of the, you know, not so much the executive branch, but even to the party unofficially. And so we're gonna see probably even a more divided space, Uh, you know, argumentatively, and I tend not to disagree with this, many political scientists tend to see the U.S. Senate as kind of the nursery of the presidency. So expect to see more, (laughs) you know, interest coming from senators, like we did quite frankly, you know, back in 2016, we're gonna see more of it. And I guess for me, I'm more curious as to what this kind of impact will lead towards at the state and local level, because we're going to be left with a vacuum, uh, essentially, uh, of leadership right now. So
0: let's talk about that, what's happening in Connecticut and how what we're seeing in Connecticut may mirror what's happening at the national level. But as you say, and you know, as, as you and I believe, what's mm-hmm. happening at the local and state level is often more important than what we see at the national level. Talk to us about how the state Republican Party in Connecticut is grappling with some of these challenges that we've seen nationally.
1: Kyle, okay, You might remember back in the fall, I wrote a, an op-ed about this, that uh, it, this has been an overwhelming concern for the Republican State Party uh, and long before even Trump uh, came about. Part of it is more internal and bureaucratic challenges. I think we tend to forget in Connecticut, we have an obsession with home rule and it kind of comes to <laughs> local governance operations and even autonomy actually comes to it does come to, to bud, if you will. Uh, even among state parties. We see this among Democratic town committees, Republican town committees, so fractured, so divided internally already. It's kind of built in that way institutionally that it leads to a lot of these cliques and divisions already. Then you put in what's going to happen, the decision of who's going to be the interim uh, party chair, uh, because the former party chairman, uh, J.R. Romano, resigned officially last month. And then we have, obviously, the regular election scheduled for the chair's race anyway in June, as well as the state central committee race in May. So right now, I would offer the next six months, this is the time to watch what will be the next will be next for the Republican State Party. And more specifically, I'm interested in terms of all the candidates are running. Uh, The numbers are, I guess, anywhere from four to six, is my understanding. I've actually spoken to several candidates about it uh, for the chair's race. And why this matters so much is because if the pieces still remain divided, which it has been for a long time, Then what is this going to mean then come the gubernatorial election next year? Because this is all a setup right now for what could take place next year for the governor's race, the lieutenant governor's race, for the treasurer's race. Let's keep on going down comptrollers. There's so many of these, you know, state races that take place. And we can't forget the municipal and local races in November, as well as some, you know, the year after. So it'll be interesting to watch in the next few months. There's
0: so many layers this, And so many people trying to decide what the way forward should look like, but there doesn't seem to be a consensus. Do you see this as a crisis of leadership? Or do you see it as more of a reflection of what's happening in the political space, that there are so many issues, that often the benefits of engaging on those issues may be diminishing for some people. And so then it makes it hard. I mean, at this point, to think about an interim leader, and then in a few months, having to have someone in a more permanent situation, that's not really politics as usual.
1: And on top of that, we have to keep one thing in mind. They've had to go out and fundraise significantly because they've had less than $100,000 in their coffers. Uh, And so the the concern is that, you know, there's got to be another $100,000 easily raised uh, if it's not already raised uh, very soon just to operate. So there are all these uh, problems and dilemmas and issues that are really taking about right now. But th- this has been going on for a while. It's been festering. And I guess the thing I'm most concerned about, and I'm sure you can understand this in, in terms of understanding parties is, all these divisions do not help out uh, You know, some kind of messaging in terms of the united effort to having everybody together. My biggest fear, too many candidates will run for chair, which we're already seeing. Too many candidates will run for governor again which, you know, we're likely to see very soon as early as the summer for people who announced. And so it'll it likely remain divided for a, a long time to come. I, I hate offering and suggesting that I think, you know, I wrote a couple articles about that for a journal or two as well, for political scientists. And this is my biggest fear is that all this. Now, there's some people who argue that's partly because we don't have a, you know, quote, unquote, strong party boss, somebody within the system that could kind of operate negotiate and just get things done and that's partly because of the revisions that were done to our state constitution and how we set up our parties back in the 60s i'm not saying that's the way to go by the way but there's got to be some reforms internally to deal with some of these divisions within the party. And and quite frankly, we see some of this even among Democrats. I don't want any more Democrats from this too, because the DTC's Democratic Town Committee is a legendary for their divisions, especially in the city. So I don't want to escape that either. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: You know, it's, it's definitely, these sorts of divisions definitely are not beholden to any one party. And what I always think about is who inherits that legacy of division? You and I work with college students and young people every day. You advise a lot of young people, and you're engaging them, really thinking about issues and policy and structure, and not just labels. What are you hearing from the young people that you work uh, with? You know, to start
1: thats the, such a good question.
0: <laughs> start <laughs> the semester with an insurrection, right? And then to teach about how that fits into politics. But also now you're thinking about party leadership and who gets to move forward. So talk to us about what you're hearing.
1: Well, you know this this is a big issue for the younger generation, certainly millennials, and absolutely for uh, Generation C. First off, we can't ignore the stats. We know a lot of the data out there that the majority of young people are not affiliated with a political party, so they lean. So they might lean one or the other, but there are all these independents and unaffiliated voters that exist, and certainly this is the case in Connecticut, and it's a big factor among party loyalists and people who are engaged, because how do you drive them over the side if we're seeing the divisions internally with the party playing out? And so this makes things very, very difficult. So what I remind students is that, you know, if they are genuinely concerned about one party or the other, step up and get involved and get engaged. And I oftentimes make it a practice of mine saying that, look, I'm not enamored with my party. I haven't been for a long, long time, probably at least a good generation, quite frankly. But I emphasize that, look, you can get involved at the local and state level, which, you know, I have done. And I've had other students do the same. Simple things like volunteering door knocking, um, fundraising, volunteering, there are a number of different pathways which young people can participate in. Because it's no secret, you attend these local town committee meetings, Republicans, Democrats, it's older people, overwhelmingly. They're the ones who are involved, they're the ones engaged, they have the party affiliation, most of them are retired, they have the resources and money and the means to do it. Young people generally don't, but they have the time sometimes on their hands. So I think that this is really the time for so many of them to step up and be involved. It's the little things that matter that can go a long way.
0: And you've also written about the sort of new ways of engaging in politics, now that we have to rely on technology and Zoom to participate in public meetings or public forums. And so it's interesting that young people are, you know, much more proficient at navigating that technology than older people are. And yet we still continue to see who's dominating the conversation as you think about the path forward, right? Yes, we are divided today, but as you say, we have so many elections that are coming and key policy issues within the state of Connecticut. What are two or three policy issues that you say to people, regardless of your party label or how you lean, this is something we should pay attention to in the state of Connecticut?
1: One major thing to me is economic development, Um, certainly in our cities, but even in our suburbs. Um, You know, there's been a concern about overdevelopment. There's been concerns certainly about housing concerns. Um, These have been, again, longstanding issues that have plagued Connecticut for a while. And again, going back to the discussion around home rule, there's gonna be an ongoing debate about how much autonomy should local towns have when it comes to development. And we're seeing that play out and that's a big issue. But for the cities, I think it's critical because younger people generally want to be in cities, Um, especially if they are, you know, they're single. Uh, And they don't want to be dependent on a car, not own a car. And so we're seeing that play out in cities like New Haven, for example. But I'm curious to see how that will play out in places like Bridgeport and Hartford. I'm certain more development has got to take place at some point to recognize that our cities can be viable places and spaces. They already are in many neighborhoods and communities, but it has to take place um, from beyond. And so I am desperately looking and seeing, okay, when is this going to come to fruition? We see it here and there. I'm really kind of struck by Stanford, quite frankly, of all the cities, because they're they very imaginative and creative of how they reinvent themselves. So that could be one example among many. Um, I, I would say that's probably one uh, key area. Another one's going to be party affiliation. You know, We're seeing the numbers drop off uh, significantly. And this is all before even the November election. Um, And it's not just for the Republicans, Democrats, too. We have a lot of new people arriving to Connecticut because of the pandemic, and the majority of them are unaffiliated voters. (laughs) So there's got to be some concern among both parties say, okay, what do we do to reach out to these unaffiliated voters? And that's going to be still left up in the air. They're up for grabs if there's any interest for that. And then I would say the third one is, what do we do uh, surrounding, um, you know, at least the the tax environment here in Connecticut, I think that's still an issue here. Um, There's a need for some tax reform, um, and there's going to be obviously a breaking point in the sense of uh, what are we going to do about capital gains? What are we going to do about property taxes? There are many places where it's higher than it should be. Estate taxes, debt taxes, there are a number of these income taxes that really are still an issue in Connecticut that has not gone away. And I'm not saying that any reform is needed, although we know that some has to take place. But what are we gonna to do to deal with the state economy? Because it has been an issue that just won't go away.
0: So I have yeah. to put you on the spot here because this is what we do. Um, when you <laughs> you think about the the coming months for the state of Connecticut, and as you said, not only will we have these sort of party elections, people are gearing up now to run for governor and run for some of these other positions. What do you see on the horizon, or, or who do you see emerging as saying, look, I want to represent the party at this level, and here are the kinds of things that I will prioritize?
1: Well, I mean, you know, you've heard so many names, and you know, state local governments might be, <laughs> it's my research, especially in Connecticut. And so there's been a lot of talk, certainly, of the former uh, minority party leader in the House, um, you know, Themis Claritas as being a candidate, uh, no surprise at that. Um, and, and so there's been some talk of that. Erin Stewart, obviously, is a name you can't ignore. Obviously, the new Britain mayor, uh, even though obviously she's announced she's gonna run again for mayor. You know, there's, there's no question that, you know, she started up her own political action committee uh, as well. Uh, Bob Stefanowski hasn't gotten out of the limelight either. I mean, certainly his op-eds uh, have certainly been out there. Uh, and so that, that's something, you know, he'll be somebody to follow as well. Although we have to keep in mind, it'll be interesting among all these candidates, I'm only maybe let's go with the top three. If that's best among probably easily six or eight that I could come up with, uh, it'll be interesting to see who will announce first. Right, right. getting out. The <laughs> I think that's more going to be more the bet. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly, and it's going to be interesting. If, let's say, arguably, it, it could be Aaron Stewart, right, because she was on the last candidates the last time to announce. So let's be fair. Uh, but I think that you know it would be no surprise that she did. Uh, But I think realistically, because she's running for for mayor, she might not be. She might wait till the end of the year to do so. Uh, And so I'd like to, I'd be interested to see how soon will somebody like Thomas or Bob come out and saying this, will it be in the summer? Will it be in the fall? It might be sooner than I think people will expect. Jonathan Wharton
0: is Associate Dean of the School of Graduate and Professional Studies at Southern Connecticut State University. And he's a Republican political analyst and frequent writer. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me on, Professor. I appreciate it.
0: Disrupted is produced by Katie Tolarski and Daniela Luna. A very special thank you and good luck to Daniela. Our intern is Shekinah Collier. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.